Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 158. Today, we are going to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and why I think it's the 2001 of horror movies. This week, when you hear this, tomorrow, uh, October 21st, we are doing F.W. Murnau's uh, silent film classic Faust, based on Goethe's masterpiece, with a live musical score by The Silent Light. They were here for Metropolis. They shred. They're like a metal uh, ambient band, and they are bringing their force to this classic tale of a man selling his soul to the devil and repenting. So totally metal. Next week, October 25th, Wednesday, is our our monthly open mic short night for October. Our theme is scares. We're pretty filled up, so I think it's going to be a great night of shorts. If you want to meet local filmmakers and build community, that is definitely a night to come over. Thursday, we are doing uh, the Renee Claire 1940s Agatha Christie adaptation, and then there were none. A really, really fun movie, actually based on my favorite Agatha Christie novel. And we're also a proud to partner with Myrtle.com, headed by Greg Carber. They're coming to do a live murder mystery ahead of And Then There Were None. Uh, so join us Thursday for that, and that's at 7.30. And then just to put this on your radar a little further out, November 2nd and 3rd, we are really honored to be hosting and partnering with the Guadalajara Los Angeles Film Festival for our third year. We are going to be doing programs of shorts here at the Secret Movie Club Theater on the 2nd and 3rd. And then we're also partnering and doing a big movie premiere, Maestra, at the Million Dollar Theater on the 3rd. Go to the Guadalajara Film Festival to check that out. And we would love to have you. They put on an amazing fest. They are amazing people. And they bring the filmmakers to come talk. As always, please write us at community at secretmovieclub.com with any any thoughts, any questions you have. You can check out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com or cheat code is just go to Eventbrite if you're here in the Southern California area and you want to attend one of our events. Go Eventbrite, Secret Movie Club, and follow us. And as always, reviews really, really, really help. It's funny. I listen to podcasts too and I hear them all say that and and I I get it uh, so if you do like this podcast you like what we do a review on Spotify a review on Apple podcasts or whatever goes a long way and there you go so let's move on So uh, our director of 2023 is Alfred Hitchcock and we are now in I was a runner in high school uh, and not a not a good one <laughs> if I'm <laughs> brutal with myself but I enjoyed it I did cross country and I did track and field I was not really competitive ever but it was good and it, it created a lifelong habit of running which I'm grateful for uh, it, jogging and running has really helped me my mental health and my stress that being said uh, I was part of a, a mile relay team and I would run the mile so we are in the last lap a mile is four times around the track and we are now October November December of Alfred Hitchcock we just have seven movies left and we just screened four of his Alfred Hitchcock presents directed TV shows and then we screen Psycho. And what's interesting to me, and the reason I wanted to do a pod, it's funny, occasionally we'll get people trolling us in the comments and Instagram, I notice. It seems to be one specific person uh, most of the time for doing pods occasionally that seem very obvious, not really hot takes. And I take that criticism and I need to make sure that we're doing something profound. But in this instance, I do want to make an argument that 
as beloved, if that, that's not even really the word, but as popular as Psycho is, as much as everybody knows about it, and it is a perennial Halloween, October, rap theater title, as much as people know it's one of Hitchcock's greatest movies, as much as even people in movies give it the nod that it's one of the first movies of modern horror, I still put to you that it's actually vastly underrated. I really do see Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which he made at 61, which is one of the most incredible things. Uh, One of his most experimental, crazy, risk-taking movies he made in his 60s, which is not usually the way that it goes. Every now and then you get filmmakers like that, Louis Bunuel, Kubrick, even Kurosawa, I think you can point to doing and I've probably said this a million times, but doing, and now Scorsese with movies like Wolf of Wall Street, The Silence, The Irishman. Uh, but at 61, it probably was a little more realistic to expect that Hitchcock would maybe start coasting and just doing what he does well. Uh, but no, he was a restless person, a restless creative person. And I wanted to devote the podcast today to Psycho uh, and just say that I view it as the 2001 of horror movies. And I'm referencing Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, by which I mean 2001 A Space Odyssey, 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, is usually held by most people as one of the high watermarks of cinema. That actually has never quite been reached or surpassed since and now we're going on 55 years so that's pretty high praise for a film and it it, not only the effects or the ambition of making a serious speculative science fiction movie but also really 2001 a space odyssey really changed the cinematic form in my opinion and set uh, if a not as of yet surpassed goal or guide, it still exists, I think, for all of us in cinema who maybe harbor, could be foolish ambitions to create something really epic that really pushes into something and does something with the form that excites people in content and form that they haven't seen before. 2001 is a movie you look to. And I say that Psycho is, uh, to this day, 62 years later, the one of the, the high watermarks of horror. You probably know everything there is to know about Psycho, or at least enough, and you don't need someone to regurgitate it again, so I'll try to be very quick. But Hitchcock had been making movies already for five decades when he made Psycho. Psycho was actually the first movie of his fifth decade of filmmaking. He was 60. He was at the height of his fame and the height of his success when he made Psycho. He was coming off the 50s where he had just made monster hits, uh, sometimes back to back to back. He had a wildly popular TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And in fact, it was the TV show uh, that gave him, I think, the discipline and the 
realization that he wanted to make this movie Psycho, which he, he wanted to be boundary pushing. He, he had read the book, and, and in fact, he didn't want anyone to know the twist in the book. So uh, one note right here, I am going to spoil. I am going to talk about all of Psycho. So like The Sixth Sense, like uh, many movie usual suspects with amazing twists, Psycho has one of the amazing twists in cinema, and I am going to talk about it. So if you don't want to hear it, turn this off, watch the movie, come on back when you're ready. Uh, but uh, Hitchcock read the book by Robert Block, loved it, and actually bought all the copies, which I always wondered how Robert Block felt about that. But it, it bought all the copies so nobody would know the twist before the movie came out. Uh, interestingly, in the 50s, Hitch had felt that he was scooped by on the great French filmmaker Henri Clouseau uh, when uh, – Clouseau made this movie Diabolique, and Hitchcock had actually tried to option the book that Diabolique was based on, and Clouseau got there just ahead of Hitchcock. And Diabolique, is an amazing film, was a monster hit, uh, and Hitchcock was, was furious. He actually went—because it has a great twist, too. And uh, he did go on to option a book by the same writers that became Vertigo. So in some ways, you know, maybe Hitchcock got the better of that deal, only in the sense that Vertigo is on Sight and Sound's top 10 all the time now. And people always cite it as many people as their favorite Hitch. Uh, but I think that Hitch maybe was itching. Hitch was, had the itch to make a movie with a twist. And uh, he, I think he read Psycho and he was like, this is it. Bought all the books. And I think the studio, Paramount in this case, was really leery because of the subject matter. There had been a serial killer, Ed Gein, who actually would be partially the, the inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. And Ed Gein's serial killings were, as any serial killings would be, uh, just too grisly, uh, especially too grisly for 1960 cinema. So it, it, Hitchcock brought on a screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, and they adapted Psycho. Uh, and, it, you know, the title tells you <laughs> it's going to be about someone who's got pretty intense issues. Uh, and But the studio was leery. So the way that Hitch pitched it to them was that he would make it super low budget. And uh, he had a backup plan even that if the movie didn't really turn out, they would edit it and sanitize it a bit. And it would be a two-part Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. And he told the studio, I'll do it like my TV show. Uh, he used the he used his TV show crew. Uh, and Cameraman, it was the one movie uh, it, through Marnie that wasn't shot by Robert Burke, the amazing uh, cinematographer Hitch worked with from Strangers on a Train On. And uh, so there was already, Hitch was already, and I think this always goes to show you people who, there's so few of them, filmmakers who are not only geniuses creatively, but geniuses business-wise and are covering because they know that you have to be a genius at business to have any longevity creatively. And I think Hitch definitely knew that. So uh, this is all set up. The movie was made for $800,000, which I looked up. And today, 2023, October 2023 money, that would be uh, about a budget of $8 million, which is a, a decent budget, but, but very still would definitely be considered low budget. Uh, by today's standards. And he went, he cast uh, Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, John Gavin, Vera Miles. Uh, Vera Miles had been in a number of his Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. And he went and he shot the movie. Uh, he shot it fairly quickly, although they had enough money to build the Bates Motel and the Bates House, which shows you how far money went back then. You couldn't, I don't think you could do that with $8 million today, uh, actually build these uh, sets that you could be in and out of that way. You could do some set building, I'm sure. I don't think you could build the house uh but 
if you've never seen Psycho, basically it is a masterfully plotted horror movie that keeps pulling the rug out from under your feet. A woman who steals $40,000, Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, has to stop over at a hotel during a rainstorm. And she actually, in talking to the uh, the person who runs the hotel, a, a very sort of charming, nervous, strange, young, gawky man named Norman Bates, uh, she decides actually to return the money, do the right thing. Uh, and then she gets brutally murdered in her shower. And we've seen Norman arguing with his mother, who seems very unstable, up uh, in the house uh, that they both live in. And Norman comes down, discovers Marianne's murdered, butchered body in the shower, and he decides to get rid of it rather than go to the police. And meanwhile, Marianne's sister shows up with Marianne's boyfriend and a private investigator trying to find the 40,000. They all track her down to the hotel, and they all engage with Norman, who's trying to run interference so that they don't deal with his mother, who he's trying to protect, who clearly has... Uh, who's abusive and horrible and jealous and possessive, and uh, and the way, and I'm telling the story for a reason because then it's revealed at the end uh, when Vera Miles, Marion Crane's sister, actually gains entrance into the house. Uh, she's looking for Mrs. Bates because they realize that Mrs. Bates is the last one who probably saw uh, uh, Marion, and uh, she finally finds Mrs. Bates in the basement, and Mrs. Bates is dead. And uh, her body is mummified, and Norman runs in dressed as his mother and tries to kill uh, Marion's sister, but is stopped by Marion's boyfriend. And then at the police station, uh, they discover that Norman has uh, is uh, like schizophrenic, and that the mother part of his personality has taken over, and that basically he brutally murdered his mother and her boyfriend. Uh, years ago and has covered ever since and lived there and run the hotel and has manifested his mother because he can't deal with what he's done. A very unsettling movie. And there you go. And there, that that's essentially the plot to Psycho. When the movie came out, um, it's funny, there was a moment I've heard, I've read, where Hitch actually thought the movie didn't work. And this was before Bernard Herrmann's score, which I think tells you something about how important having a genius composer is. And what I mean by that is, yes, we all love John Williams and Bernard Herrmann and Max Steiner and uh, Ennio Morricone and Joe Hisahashi and uh, Fumio Hayasaka and and just all these incredible um, composers from around the world. But a composer is as important as a good editor, as important as a good cinematographer, as as important as your lead. In this instance, Psycho wasn't working and then Bernard, Herman, Bernard Herman wrote the score, and then it was working like gangbusters. So there was a point when Hitch was cutting the movie where I think he was very nervous. He knew it was edgy. Uh, I don't know if he thought it worked, what he was doing. And I think he didn't know if it was fish or fowl. Uh, I don't think he thought – I think he thought he had probably pushed it too hard to really be an Alfred Hitchcock Presents. That's certainly true. Uh, because even as a feature, it's shocking. Um, but at the same time, he didn't think the feature was working. But Bernard Herman came in, came up with those amazing cues. The the of course the shower murder cue, which is now every eponymous, everybody knows it, and probably one of the inspirations, frankly, for John Williams' approach to Jaws. This very simple uh, thematic idea that in this instance embodies murder. You you it feels like a knife slashing that. And, you know, John Williams' Jaws cue is just dun-dun, 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 and feels like the momentum of a shark moving through the water. Um, 
But when the score was written, uh, Hitch clearly felt, okay, let's release it. He was very canny about how he promoted the movie, uh, hiding the twist that Norman was Mrs. Bates, even from the industry. He, uh, Hitchcock, put out casting notices for Mrs. Bates. He talked about who the lead contenders were, including Judith Anderson, uh, who I believe had worked with him in Rebecca. Uh, There were promo stills on the set of Psycho where there was a chair uh, that said, uh, I think, Norma Bates on it. And what's interesting is that Hitch was actually still very clever because in those publicity shots, Anthony Perkins is not in the shot. So Hitch was being rigorous about telling the audience the truth which in this instance was because Norman's not in the publicity shot. Norman's Norma. But, uh, you know, if you didn't know that, you didn't see the movie, you're not going to put that together. And if you bought all the books, you, you weren't going to have read it. You, you really see the the tripartite genius of Hitch. I said Hitch as the creative filmmaker, which is a given. Hitch as a business person, that's a given. And really the third is also a given, which is Hitch as a brilliant advertiser. Hitch as a brilliant marketer. Hitch as a, just somebody who really understands how... You build suspense even in a, a marketing campaign. So uh, he also did one last thing, which was very clever, which is he insisted, uh, and I think this was based on some test screenings early on, he realized that the way that people were watching movies in 1960, people would often just come in in the middle of a movie, pay a ticket, sit down in the middle, and then they'd stay and watch the beginning. Well, Janet Lee, who everyone and Hitch had led them to believe, was uh, the lead of the picture. She's murdered 30 minutes into it. And Hitch realized if people wandered in after those 30 minutes, all they're going to do is sit there for another hour and 10, hour and 15, and go, where where the F is Janet Lee? And so he made it part of the marketing campaign that you weren't allowed into the movie if you weren't there from the very beginning, which I think also added a level of intrigue about why. Hmm. Uh, So all this stuff. And now when Psycho came out, It was shocking. It did scandalize a lot of people. It also made uh, the equivalent of $500 million. So on an $8 million budget, it made $500 million. Hitch had waived his salary uh, and had taken a hefty back end, which I think the studio thought he was never going to see, so they were happy to do it. Hitch made the equivalent of $50 million of that $500 million. He took home 10% and basically was set for the rest of his life. And in many ways, you could say the rest is history. We talk about Psycho to this day. But the, the, what I wanted to talk about was every time I see Psycho and I read more and more about how Hitchcock made it, several things impress themselves upon me that I wanted to talk to you uh, about today. First, I want to talk about the craft. So let's get into that. I think... If you're into cinema and you're a filmmaker, the thing that I notice about Hitchcock's craft in Psycho is every time I see the movie, it's it's in some ways terrifying to me how much work clearly went into making Psycho uh, a success from Hitchcock's craft's point of view. Hitchcock's main stylistic technique that really is a through line his entire career is his subjective point of view starting point for how he tells stories. And I think it's it's very equivalent to what I've heard uh, Stephen King say about how important it is to write main characters you care about and then to leave those, put those main characters in horrible situations where you're just on the edge of your seat. And I think that 
when Hitchcock uses subjective POV, and what that means technically, just to be real simple about it, is you'll get a close-up or a medium shot of a character looking at something, and then you'll see what they're seeing. But you'll see it from where they're standing, from their point of view. So it, you can just you can do this yourself right now. Wherever you are, look out your window, and if you see across the way, I don't know what your view is, but across the way, someone walking their dog. Uh, and that's 30 yards away, that's how Hitchcock would shoot it. They'd shoot you, he'd shoot you in the seat, looking out the window, and then he'd put the camera right where you are. He might throw on a slightly longer lens for for graphic uh, you know, punctuation, but essentially it'd be where you are, and you'd see that dog walking the street. And it would just subconsciously, for the audience, make us start identifying with you. And so in Psycho, Hitchcock uses that, but he he sort of does something sublime, if you can use that word, because the movie's so unsettling. He he does something that even bests his own game, which is he starts us with Marion Crane, with Janet Lee, and for thirty minutes we're with her, and we're not only are we with her, but he's using this subjective POV, so we have her paranoia, we have her guilt, and then when she is brutally murdered in the shower, that POV switches to Norman. And suddenly we're doing this subjective POV with Norman. And then when Norman uh, disappears from the narrative a little bit in the middle, he doesn't actually ever really disappear, but after he, he disposes of the body, we do this fade out and suddenly we're with uh, Marion's boyfriend, her sister, and the private investigator, and uh, Arbogast, and played by, wonderfully by Martin Balsam, who's only in the movie for 15 minutes before he gets killed. But... Uh, and what's interesting is then for a little bit, we're actually with Arbogast, the private investigator, and that's subjective POV. And I think that maybe Hitchcock's uh, scheme here was we're relating with Marion, and then the rug gets pulled out from under our feet. And we're like, and I'm going to get back to this in a moment, because what I want to talk about, number two, is uh, from a world point of view, morally and ethically, how, why, like 2001, Psycho uh, is, is, in my opinion, cinematically groundbreaking. And I'm going to get to that. That's, that's the second part. But, but just to stay on the technique here, uh, pulling the rug out when Marion gets killed in the shower, we're not like, <laughs> we were with her, and then she gets brutally murdered. Now we're with Norman, and we don't know, actually, you know, we, we, we think that Norman is covering up the murder. It makes him very anti-heroic. Uh, it makes him a very complex character. But we feel that he's henpecked by his mother. We feel the mother is psychologically abusive. We feel maybe that Norman has never gained the tools to stand up for himself. So even though it, it's, it's not that we root for Norman, Hitchcock uses the subjective camera with Norman and weirdly, we do root for him. People point out the hilarious irony that when Norman buries Marion's car, dumps it in the swamp, uh, along with the $40,000, which he doesn't care about at all, uh, there's a moment where the car stops sinking and is clearly visible so that anybody who comes to the hotel is going to see this car in the swamp. And uh, Norman gets really nervous. And and we do, too. Uh, now, I've seen the movie so many times I don't anymore. But I do think it's fair to say that for people seeing the movie the first time, they might they might go, oh, no, he, they, the car, they're going to find the car. So Hitchcock is playing with you because he's done the subjective POV. So now you feel how Norman feels. Then when we go to Arbogast, the private investigator, I think it's another Hitchcock promise that, oh, the private investigator, he's going to figure it out. Okay, we're with him. And he is starting to figure it out. And we are using the subjective POV. And then suddenly he gets killed by, uh, by Norman's mother. 
Uh, and then we are with Vera and John Gavin, uh, Vera Miles, John Gavin, the actors, but Marion's sister. And Marion's sister, we're with her when she goes into the house. And I think what's brilliant there is because of what's happened uh, subconsciously, everybody but Norman whose subjective POV we've been thrown into has been murdered. So by the time Vera Miles goes into the the house, whether we realize it on a conscious level or not, uh, we're pretty, you know, we're on pins and needles. She's going to get murdered. Uh, and that she doesn't get murdered, that she does get saved, is almost a, a you know, a kind of grace from God, uh, from everything we've seen. But then Hitch ends the movie uh, with this psych- psychiatrist talking for five minutes about Norman's condition, which initially used to irk me. I've read reviews like Roger Ebert's review where he says that's the only part he would trim or cut. I get it. I've seen the movie now so many times. I really don't think that part hurts the movie. Uh, and I, even more than that, I actually look forward to it now. Uh, I, I don't know that I, I, I just given that I think Psycho is so important, I just wouldn't touch it. Uh, I understand why people think, hey, we, we get it. This could have been trimmed down a little, but I, I personally wouldn't touch it. Just knowing how editing works sometimes, you, you don't know why a four-minute explanation from a psychiatrist is necessary. But the final scene is Norman, but with his mother's voice in his head in police protection, uh, and he's fully his mother. And we track in on him. And it's this really weird, unsettling, psychotic POV, subjective POV. It's like the sublimation of the technique. The other part of the technique that I want to talk about really uh, just – there's so much to talk about in Psycho, but I'm I'm only going to touch on these two things uh, from a technical point of view, is how rigorously – Hitchcock does not lie to us. And this is really, really important in movies with twists. Usually in movies with twists, uh, I've noticed there's a little cheating or there's some withholding. And you, you love the twist, and it's fine. It's great. I think I get it. But actually, Hitchcock is telling us from the very beginning of the movie that Norman is the killer. Uh, and I think that's really crucial. He, you have to be, you know, you notice it on a second, third, fourth, and fifth rewatch, of course, because now you, you're looking for that. But um, from Norman deciding what key to give her and deciding on room one, which is cl- clearly his murder room, uh, to he can't say bathroom because you get the sense that he's killed young women in the bathroom. So he says, uh, in there. To a way he walks up the steps later in the movie, which is almost him going from Norman to his mother. Uh, he becomes more feminine as he sashays up the, the stairs. All these things are told to you. And what's the, the biggest <laughs> sort of miracle of filmmaking is that we see the mother pacing in shadow from other people's points of view in the house. And Norman moves his mother from the top to the basement in this beautiful, amazing shot where the camera goes up and into a top shot with no cuts. And the, but you realize there's no cheating there. Uh, We can't see the mother's face in the top shot and we're hearing her voice, but it's, it's not a cheat. Norman is taking her corpse (laughs) from the bedroom and bringing it to the basement. That clearly is happening. Uh, But because we don't see that she's mummified, we actually were tricked into thinking the mom really is, playing some kind of part in this. When Arbogast gets killed, we see the mother kill him. uh, And I have to imagine that, you know, and the mother seems very masculine in that moment. And so there, but we don't see her face. So there's just all these great things. What what was interesting was that in the book, uh, Robert Block would write these conversations where Norman would talk with his mother at the kitchen table. And Hitchcock cuts those. And I think interestingly, because uh, if he had shot a scene where Norman's talking to his mother and we see the mother, that would have been a cheat uh, in a way. 
yes, we're seeing it from Norman's point of view, I guess you could argue at the end of the film, but it, it would have been a cinematic cheat. Hitchcock doesn't allow himself that. He uses film language so rigorously and in such a well-thought-out way that he's telling us the truth the whole time, and yet by telling us the truth, it's like what uh, Shakespeare said in Macbeth, to win us to our harms, the instruments of evil tell us truths, win us over with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequence, Uh, which uh, I I love that quote. I unfortunately think it has a lot of uh, application to a lot of how politicians treat us uh, and how the world goes and how people who are unscrupulous will exploit people. In this instance, I think it, it applies to Hitchcock's style, which is he is telling us truths, but it's to betray us in a way to shock us uh, at the end. The second thing that I wanted to talk about with uh, Psycho, a, the reason that I think it's revolutionary is I, I'm 46 right now, and I still think, and, and I know, I, I really fear that one day uh, this will leave me, but I, I hope it doesn't. I love style. Uh, I love formal uh, um, solutions to cinema. I love cinematic solutions. I love exciting cinema. I love pushing yourself cinematically. And I love that in Psycho, here's a 61-year-old Hitchcock who creates his most avant-garde sequence, possibly, arguably, in any of his films. The shower murder sequence, which is something like 75 setups, 80 cuts. Uh, just really uh, even more montage and cutty than Eisenstein, or at least as montage and cutty in Eisenstein. Uh, but I don't think that style means anything to me or has real impact unless it's backed up with ideas and story and content. And I think you, to me, I would argue that many of our greatest movie makers understand this, that actually you have to be a genius is, is there, there are so few geniuses that uh, I need to not use that word because it, it's just too, it's put too much pressure and stress on people. But really great filmmakers need to have a really strong handle on what makes a good story and what makes compelling characters as well. And then find the stylistic and formal ideas and solutions to come out of that. That's really my belief. That's my formula for what makes great cinema rather than just being formalist. Or, you know, I think that if you had to be one or the other, like a great stylist or a great with story, I personally would choose great with story. I know other people might argue be a great stylist because in some ways cinema is about atmosphere and mood, and, and, and I get that. But if I had to choose, I'd probably want to be a little better at the story and compelling characters if I had to choose. But I, I don't want to choose because I, I do think that I've, I've seen movies I love, and they're great, great stories, compelling characters. But... The movies that I love, love are movies that also have uh, amazing style. But it's this style and these cinematic ideas that come out of the, the okay, here's the story I'm telling. Uh, here's what the scene is about. Here's the emotion I want to evoke in the audience. What's the stylistic answer here or what's the shot that does that? And then I think the greatest directors come up with sort of, oh, wow, that idea hits them and I'm going to try this. And it does. It accomplishes that. Um what Hitchcock accomplishes in Psycho, uh, to me, when Marion Crane gets killed in the shower 30 minutes into the picture, uh, y- you're, you're genuinely shocked. She was our main character. We were supposed to be with her the whole movie, if you go by film language. So what happens on a content level, on a story level, 
is all bets are off. You have no idea what the next hour and 10 minutes of the movie is going to be. And I can't imagine what that must have felt like in 1960, seeing that movie. And especially in the American cinematic tradition, Hitchcock did a very cruel thing that I think is brilliant, which is that in the American cinematic tradition, when a character makes a redemptive decision, in this instance, Marion Crane makes the decision to return the $40,000. She makes the right decision. She's going to go back to Phoenix. She was about to you know, do the wrong thing. She was in the act of doing the wrong thing. And, and she's, no, um, she's going to turn around. She's going to give back the money. She's going to take her licks. That is the right decision. And in normal American tradition, uh, she'd be rewarded for that. Uh, You know, John Gavin would say, don't worry about the money, and they'd be together, something like that. Instead, she's rewarded with being killed. And suddenly you have to acknowledge a universe where someone can do all the right things, even make a redemptively good decision, and be punished for it, uh, or at the very least have something happen they didn't expect. And that's very, I think, true to life. Now, I've said it many times, and I, I'll just say it here again because I, I, I do, don't want to necessarily be misunderstood. I am spiritual. I believe in a transcendent level to the universe. Uh, I believe in God. And uh, I, I, you know, knock wood, um, been very grateful for the life I've led, and I've found meaning in it. Uh, but I, I do, th- and I think at the same time, I, I try, it's like what Spinoza said. Spinoza said, know the worst, believe in the best. I think it's a hell of a challenge to anybody. And I don't know that I've, I've, um, I don't know that I've been able to do it because when you really look at the world, look at human nature, some aspects of human nature, what some people do, how things go, it's pretty hard. It's pretty rough to look at the world that way and to have to, to, to wrestle with that. And it's certainly tough to, to wrestle with those things. Um, and then, maintain faith. Uh, and I think this is a, a, a challenge for many people. Uh, now, some people, it's not a challenge. <laughs> They're like, makes all the sense in the world. There is no God. We're just on a rock in outer space. And this, you know, that doesn't mean that they're foregoing morals and ethics, but it's no surprise to them that there'd be serial killers or people would be exploited or children would leave lives of misery and and illness and die and cancer and all these things that are really horrible to, to wrap your head around. Um, and then there are people of faith who, uh, or people who believe in God, and it, it's just not comfortable to sit in, why does this happen? And, uh, it, you know, you, you spend 30 seconds there, and you're like, I, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I want to just focus on the positive. Uh, but I do believe in that dictum of know the worst, believe in the best. And I think that here, you're thrust into, Hitchcock thrusts you into a world you you don't want to. It's and now the thing is the movie's wildly entertaining, so it's not like you're brutalized for the next hour and fifteen minutes. I mean, Psycho is a perennial Halloween classic because people thrill at it and they scream. And the mechanics and the filmmaking is, as Hitchcock has often said, you know, he thought the greatest achievement of Psycho was the filmmaking. He said he made it for the directors in a way, and and I get why he's saying that. In a lot of ways, you know, the movie was not powered by a megastar, but. Um, I think that when Marion is killed, you suddenly are thrust into a world where all bets are off. And I think that many of us will be in that, if we haven't yet, find ourselves there at some point or another on the path of life. And now I think that if that was all the movie did, uh, that would be that would in and of itself be incredible for a movie from 1960. But the moral and ethical viewpoint of the film 
whether Hitchcock intended this or not, whether he consciously thought it or not, is actually, I find, very complex. Because let's say that the movie ended with Norman just getting away with it. Uh, that would be one thing. And there are certainly killers who killed their whole lives, you know, that we'll never know about who got away with it. But he doesn't get away with it. He he does actually get caught. And what's interesting is that Marion's sister, she is uh, about to be killed, and she isn't. Um, and so there's this complexity that some people die and some people escape death. Uh, some people uh, are... I wish I could I could say it better. Uh, also, too, there there's some you know the thing that's so fascinating. The reason I think Norman Bates as a cinematic character has endured for sixty years and aged surprisingly well, as unsettling as he is, is there is some empathy to his situation. And he's a monster. There's no there's no getting around that. You can't talk around. Norman's a monster. He he's a murderer, uh, and he belongs somewhere where he can't do harm to people. But it doesn't invalidate that he clearly seems to be a victim of incredible trauma and abuse himself and that at the hands of his mother uh, and his childhood. And so the viewpoint in the movie is unsettling. It doesn't fully resolve itself, but it's, it's, it's neither totally optimistic nor totally cynical and pessimistic. And I think for that reason, I love Psycho it does raise these amazing questions. There's so much more I want to talk about with Psycho, but I am going to stop there. As always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Uh, I do believe, I know I've been teasing this uh, for a few weeks. I do believe either Secret Movie Club Podcast 159 or Secret Movie Club Podcast 160, we will be back with with a conversation. Uh, But we will be back next week with Secret Movie Club Podcast 158. As always, you can check out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com or go to Eventbrite. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I am am working, working to take Secret Movie Club uh, where we are now and make it better, make it more inclusive, program more movies, have more exciting events. And it is a community. And we are doing it as a community. Uh, Every time one of you guys offers to help or volunteer or has an idea because you believe in the mission of Secret Movie Club, it gives me strength. And I I just want to thank all of you uh, for that. And I'm trying to do my part to deliver on your belief in the idea of Secret Movie Club as a community of movie makers and movie lovers where everyone is invited and we're part of the next chapter of the story of cinema and why cinema is exciting and relevant and will be uh, for the generations to come. So thanks to all of you. I will see you next week. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you at some of our events. And I love you, family.